HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Visit wholefoodsmarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more and find the store nearest to you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coralie. Interested in the way food acts as an entry point to issues like labor and migration, author and professor Sarah Faust has written prolifically on the contemporary Latinx food landscape in New Orleans, from simultaneously overly and underly police loncheras to the drag and transgender community. Her work can be found in Gastronomica, on the Gravy Podcast, and at her website, sarahfaust.com. Thanks so much for joining me today, Sarah. Oh, thanks for having me, Coral. So I've been opening the show with a provocative to some question, where are you from, which in tracking your different moves isn't so easy to answer, is it? <laughs> no, not at all. I have been in quite a few places, but I can make an effort to do it. Um, I, what, I grew up and went to college in Kentucky, um, and then I, went, I was in the Peace Corps in Paraguay, and then after Peace Corps I worked in Kentucky um, with a for a nonprofit, and that's actually where I became interested in uh, the intersection between food and immigration. Um, and I went to grad school in New Orleans and did a master's at the University of New Orleans, and then my PhD um, in Latin American Studies through Tulane University. And now I'm in I did a postdoc at Lehigh University in, in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and now I'm in uh, Baltimore at University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Nice. And so you're currently teaching. Correct. Yeah, I'm uh, doing. I'm in a, an American Studies department, and I'm a visiting lecturer. And so, uh, you write on your website that you believe in the importance of interdisciplinary learning and teaching. And so, um, can you talk a bit about how that applies to learning about food and culture and immigration, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I have taught um, at both Lehigh and Tulane as well, and mostly focusing on these interdisciplinary learning and, and interdisciplinary studies and, and really kind of giving students 
uh, kind of background on what that means and, and really how that can enhance and enrich uh, different uh, learning processes. So we'll look at different, uh, through different dif- disciplines like history, anthropology, sociology, geography, um, uh, and, and applying different theories through those, those disciplines to kind of better, more holistically understand different uh, concepts or ideas or events, things like that. And with my research, it's really, um, I think, in, enhanced uh, my writing and, and kind of the way I think about um, uh, uh, Latinx immigration, mostly Central American and, and Mexican immigrants in New Orleans, uh, and thinking historically the ties between New Orleans and uh, New Orleans, but also through really rich ethnography, uh, working with um immigrant groups and, you know, going to the taco trucks or the restaurants and, 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 and working with people. So this kind of ethnographic anthropological lens and as well as, uh, kind of an urban studies or, or maybe more like geospatial, uh, element to it, thinking about mapping of these different restaurants or taco trucks, um, and thinking about why place matters, uh, especially looking at themes of gentrification, um, people being pushed out of certain neighborhoods, um, things like that. So it really kind of enables a much broader uh, framework, uh, both theoretical and method- methodological, to look at these issues. And you were saying you teach in the American Studies Department, and so is Latin American Studies considered like a subgroup of that? So what I do, I teach in a, I, I teach American Studies through a transnational framework. So really looking at how um, the U.S. culture and history um, has really kind of been shaped uh, by its interactions with other nations, and especially within themes of like globalization, uh, neoliberalism, uh, looking at kind of the connections between the United States and other countries. So we'll look at, and I focus on Latin America through that, that framework, and really kind of how uh, kind of interventions, cultural hegemony, uh, different um, impacts the U.S. has had in these other places. Yeah, so how can, uh, I feel like I'm kind of auditing one of your classes right now, but how can something like <laughs> uh, Latino identity politics and cultural production theory be utilized to better understand like the broader political economy as it relates to immigration, labor, food, and transnationalism? Yeah, I, so particularly, you know, with cultural production theory, uh, I think it's really useful, um, you know, Seeing the processes processes of how people do culture and thinking about the different ways in which uh, those processes are are produced or how they're governed, um, and that's really what I focus on in, in the article is, is is kind of the bureaucracy within these cultural production and and kind of thinking about the political economy as well. And with immigrants and even undocumented immigrants, uh, looking at the ways uh, these individuals navigate these these different systems. Um, of governance, so local politics that that govern uh, taco truck policy to federal immigration policy, uh, you know, deportations, things like that. So different ways people navigate those systems, and and so it's part of the, the cultural production theory, these processes, but also you know kind of informs um, these kind of broader, more macro notions of, of political economy. Yeah, I feel like I've been uh, very like knee deep in your article. So for our listeners, can you give can you give like an abstract or an elevator pitch? Um, what 
inspired you to write it? Um, what was the process of writing it about? And what, yeah, what the whole thing is all about? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's, it's, uh, was actually a chapter out of my dissertation, uh, and I thought it, it kind of stood on its own um, and was important for um, to, to kind of tell the story. And it, it, you know, a lot of people have been writing about food trucks. There's a lot of really great scholarship out there right now, um, and I, I think I really compliments that scholarship um, by looking at how regulation uh, impacts access to. Uh, to own a food truck, and in particular, just to give some context, in New Orleans, after Hurricane Katrina, is when you see a lot of Central American and Mexican immigrants come to the city to help clean up and rebuild and really have settled in the city and become, uh, you know, part of of, of, of the, the social fabric of the city. And with them, bringing foodways, and in particular, uh, taco trucks or lancheras. And so... And, and it was very not not completely new to the city, but the the lancheras and then the food truck movement kind of happened at the same time. Uh, and so I write about how food policy, food truck policy in New Orleans, was very much liberalized and and a lot of very loosened in so many ways. But in a in a way that the the Latinx owned the lancheras were left out. And there's, you know, it's they they weren't at the planning meetings, but they were invited to the, the to the table, but they just uh, weren't a part of those processes. So a lot of their interests got left out, and in particular, uh, the idea that a food truck, as written in the ordinance, has to be self-propelled, and most of the lancheras are trailers. Uh, so I, I write about two case studies, really in particular. One is a guy named Mateo who's really able to, he came in when a lot of the food trucks ordinances were, were being uh, written. So he was grandfathered in uh, and had kind of four different trucks around the city. Whereas this, uh, another woman, Magda, um, and I use pseudonyms here, but she uh, was trying to open up her truck after the, the new ordinance and was excluded and she had already invested in the truck, uh, but she didn't really know um, what the policies were like Matteo did because he, he was able to, he knew people, he had connections, but Magda um, really didn't. And so she lost an investment of about $15,000 just because they banned her use of a food truck uh, because it was a lanchera. So that's, I think, a long-winded uh, version of the, the, the article. But it's, the idea is, is in this economy of where we're trying to neoliberalism, we're trying to deregulate things, but actually we're re-regulating um, in other ways, and, and trying to point out this kind of nuance within the policy and how it, it the, the unintended consequences of, of this policy. Mm-hmm. I actually didn't realize that uh, what you used were pseudonyms in the article, which I think is really, really important. Um, have you seen the new uh, season of Chef's Table yet? I have not, but I have been to um, Christina's restaurant oh, quite a bit so in, you know. in South Philly. Perfect. And, yeah, and I know her, and I've yeah I've talked to her quite a bit, and she's lovely and she and Ben are, are lovely people and I but I, I want I'm excited to see the show mm-hmm. um, but it's the food is so good and she's yeah she's fascinating and she's you know a lot of the themes that I t- talk about in my work she does you know she's really kind of been able to navigate these exclusionary systems to forge this amazing restaurant totally um, yeah and she's Philly. I think which is she's so brave to talk about it on TV, but then also has this protection of chef's table. And so um, with people like Magda and Mateo, how 
did you get them to speak on their experience and was it really difficult? Did you have to go through multiple uh, sources? Right. So I actually worked with a group called the Congress of Day Laborers as a volunteer and as a researcher for the entire time I was in New Orleans. Uh, and they, they do advocacy or like not advocacy, like uh, community organizing for immigrant rights and civil rights and labor rights in, in New Orleans. Uh, and so through them is how I met Mateo uh, and then Magda as well uh, and was asked to to go with her through the process to City Hall to help her uh, navigate, you know, the bureaucracy that anyone that wants to open a business has to go through. But, you know, I was able to interpret for her and, you know, be there right by her side through these processes and even had to give her the terrible news of not being able to open up her uh, lancerta. Sorry, could you um, could you explain that? Why were you the one to help her? Are you were so you volunteering a, or? Yeah, so as a volunteer okay. through the the Congress of Day Laborers, I was. They, they said, "Hey, Sarah, you do food studies and immigration. Can you go with her to interpret?" And I I do a lot of like going with people to you know different like a doctor's appointment or things like that to be able to help them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, it was you know kind of a good match and, and really interesting for me and for my research. Uh, to go through that process, um, and you know, but but also devastating. But uh, and the good news is, she just bought a new truck and has a really thriving business right now, so she's doing well. So, it's, how was she suddenly able to buy a truck now? Well, she got a, a self-propelled truck. She, okay. She doesn't have a a trailer huh. like tied to a truck, so she just has a her own self-propelled taco mm-hmm. truck. And so, uh, I was asking about how you were able to help Magda, whether it was a volunteer job or you were asked to document the process, because I feel like um, a lot of food writers are very conscious of there being a lot of underrepresented uh, underrepresented voices in the media, but then there's also this weird like white savior problem. And so how would you prescribe to, na- to navigate something like that? Right. I mean, and for me, you know, a white woman working with, she's Honduran, uh, and, you know, going through that process, you know, I'm able to kind of, you know, at the time when I went, I had no idea I would write an article about that process and, like, be able to apply these different theories to to what what she experienced. That wasn't the the goal, but it, you know, ended up, you know, me being able to uh, help her through the process, um, even though it wasn't successful at that moment. Uh, But then, you know, what we were able to do was, you know, follow up with City Hall on different ways to improve that policy, and they didn't end up changing it in to where the trailers could be added, but they did, you know, now they have, like, Spanish and Vietnamese language uh, services on their website, so she can, and they've, they've they updated a lot of the language on there, so it's clear what the, their expectations. Mm-hmm. So in that way, like, there was some, uh, it was productive in some ways uh, for their policy, um, but, but for Magda, you know, it, I, like, it, it, she, it was it was very tragic. I will will say that, and so I was not helpful. Um, and you know, as using my privilege, my language abilities, my car to get to the, the space um, was you know ended not not being useful for her. Um, and that was you know part of the process um, that I, that I write about in that article. Yeah, we'll take a short break, but then we'll get right back to um, this kind of tragic story that happened with Magda.
Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market. From papayas and samosas to reishi mushrooms, if it's something that sounds delicious, chances are you'll find the freshest, best version of it at Whole Foods Market. They have more than 400 stores across the country, so if you consider pizza its own food group or just can't imagine when avocado toast wasn't a thing, Whole Foods Market has you covered. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com to find a store near you. Whole Foods Market. Whatever makes you whole. This is Meant to Be Eaten. I'm speaking with author and professor Sarah Fouts. And so we were just talking about the story of Magda and how you uh, you really tried to help, but you didn't, you weren't quite able to. And I'm just going to take a little tangent here. Have you seen the show, The Great Food Truck Race? Oh, parts of it, yeah. Okay, so that's, I forgot his name. It's like Tyler something, and it's quote-unquote a reality TV show. And I feel like it paints food trucks in like this very happy, feel-good way where it's like you, you know, like small businesses are able to suddenly thrive and serve this market that, you know, never they never knew existed and how is that completely different than the reality that you saw yeah absolutely yeah what they don't paint is all the bureaucracy and red tape that anyone has to go through to be able to get you know to get a truck and and, you know the updates and the you know the the kind of inspections that 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 people have to go through um and then you know i just added on to that is is being undocumented and and trying to you know find someone that that does have you know immigration status that you can partner going to like a business partner with to, to open up a, a truck um and i yeah i i feel like uh for someone like magda who you know had done you know she went through every step that that was required and you know took got all the licensing invested in it made updates to the truck and ways that the city demanded to ultimately be told that she couldn't have the truck so it's you know it's these like small policies and it's just like a this stipulation it's very unnecessary um, in, in the ordinance, and other cities don't have that stipulation. It's just very specific to New Orleans. Um, and so, you know, it's just, it, it's bureaucracy. And that's what I write about um, in the case study of Mateo, who was very successful, but he was able to navigate that bureaucracy through, and I use the term, Olivier de Sardin's term, which is practical norms. So he's able to, you know, because he has a, a business partner who kind of guides him through these processes, uh, he knows what he needs to do, what he can do, and what what he can't do, um, and how to get red tape or how to get go through this red tape to be able to have a thriving um, kind of food truck enterprise. Um, and I and that's what to me is so interesting is how people get around a lot of this the bureaucracy that um, that you know is, is can be very inhibitive of owning a, a, a small business in that way. Um, but what people are able to do, some people will get a catering license. Right, and that enables them some leniency to have a, a, a taco truck. Like it's, it's just really fascinating how um, people do this, or the networks that are created, and kind of knowledge is passed on to different people. And that's where where I'm critical in my role because very critical of my role because I didn't know those processes. I just kind of followed the the rules and did what you're supposed to do, and, and it did not work out for Maggie and I. And that's that's kind of the the story of that. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of acted as Magda's. Um, Mateo's business partner, right? But it just didn't work out. Right. Well, not as business partner, just more as like, like an advisor. Right. Advisor, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so. But I, I mean, I was 
literally translating documents from the city, and that's, you know, it, it wasn't effective. But mm-hmm. Matteo was able to, he knew how to work around, you know, he had kind of these, like, the street smarts of how to, how to go about it, and therefore he was able to be successful. Sure. Do you know what the background was of his uh, business partner? Yeah, he, a uh, guy that had come, I believe, from New York City uh, right after Hurricane Katrina and was contracted by, like, big, uh, like, uh, big corporations in the city from, like, Tulane to the hospitals to actually feed the workers on these, like, reconstruction sites. And huh. so he brought a fleet of trucks down to the, the city, um, and and so he started out that way. And he's since, like, moved away from the food truck business, but he... He sold Mateo his first truck, which is like a tiny little yellow truck, uh, trailer actually. Um, and then this guy went on and owns like a, a brick and mortar restaurant now. So he, he's kind of used that, his like food truck fleet as kind of this initial enterprise and now moved on to like, the brick and mortar. And I'm, I'm guessing he's not an immigrant. He is, he's Brazilian. Huh, okay. So um, yeah. another question that appears on the show a lot is that there are certain foreign cultures that have been deemed as good or acceptable more than others. And how is this regulated in the regulation of lancheras versus quote unquote gourmet food trucks? Like my favorite on the food truck uh, race was this one that w- that sold escargot and everyone loved that one because it was classy and it was French. But yeah, can you talk a bit about the differences there? Yeah, I definitely, yeah, there's, I mean, in New Orleans, this whole part of the, the the article, I talk about how in Jefferson Parish there was an actual ban of food trucks um, in 2007, where the, the the whole county said no no food trucks, and, and that county has, has or parish has the highest number of Latinos in the state of Louisiana, um, and so it's very much seen as as this kind of racially charged uh, anti-immigrant um, policy because that's really who. Um, it was, you know, mostly the immigrant-owned puppet trucks that were there. Um, and I think another kind of subtle way that it, 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 it manifests to, to, to respond to your question is, is through um, just kind of juxtaposing in the policy itself this idea, I, idealizing the gourmet truck, like that's what a food truck is, right? But really, kind of most of the trucks that are in the city are these trailers. Um, so it was kind of like, very much like othering of the trailers that, that are owned by Central American and Mexican um, immigrants um, and, and, and prioritizing the, the, the gourmet truck and, and that image. Uh, so I think in those ways you can really see, you know, and I, I will, I had a, a, a close friend of mine was on the, there was a food truck council coalition uh, that was really kind of behind uh, updating the food truck policy in this in Orleans Parish. And he, you know, explained to me, he said, we tried to go talk, invite the Central American and Mexican immigrants to kind of help craft this new policy. And they, you know, they didn't show up to, 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 to the table to, to voice their opinion um, for different reasons. So and when that happened, they, you know, they didn't, they were left out of, of the policy and the gourmet truck was, was prioritized. Hmm. And so what are the accepted aesthetics of a lanchera versus a gourmet food truck? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, this idea of a fresh coat of paint, kind of the stainless steel, you put your, your lights on it, your, like, Christmas lights or whatever. Um, and, you know, the, oftentimes you get the taco truck, like Mary Douglas, the anthropologist, who, you know, she 
writes about purity and danger and kind of, you know, how the uh, Taco Trucks are, and Jeffrey Pilcher talks about this as well in his work, but they're kind of framed as, constructed as roach cards and very much um, demonized and and even criminalized to a certain degree, like, uh, as these, you know, not as, like, aesthetically pleasing and they're dirty, right? Um, and because, they, you know, they, they don't have the same aesthetic as, um, you know, these other gourmet trucks. So I think that's a big part of it. Yeah, totally. She actually has um, this quote. I might be misremembering it, but I, I love my remembering of it anyway, is that um, <laughs> if you bring food into the bathroom, like if you order to drink at a bar and you have to pee and you bring it in, it's like suddenly you feel like it's dirty. And it's like this weird idea of what's considered a clean versus a dirty space. But also right. I feel like there are a lot of food trucks today that are now um, kind of extensions of brick and mortar spaces. For example, like Van Leeuwen's has... Um, I don't know if you're familiar. It's this ice cream company that's really popular here in Brooklyn. And they have kind of like a mobile food truck. And people would not consider the truck to be dirtier than the restaurant. Like, I feel like the standard is very, um, it, it's considered the same. So why why do we see the taco trucks as roach carts? Yeah, I mean, I argue that it's because of, of how we kind of, we see uh, immigrants in that way, especially from, coming from Latin America, right? It's, it's kind of just like criminalized, um, kind of, you know, uh, othering of, of those groups. Um, and I think, you know, kind of this, like, you know, the rhetoric that comes out of, you know, the, the current administration or even Obama's administration that was, like, very much criminalization of, of these immigrant groups instead of, you know, kind of, you know, that really kind of shapes how our thinking of these spaces be, be brick-and-mortar restaurants or, you know, taco trucks. So I think that's, you know, how how we frame or how we see uh, those communities um, it, it informs, like, our perspective on, you know, their um, you know, their purity, for lack of a better word. Like, they're viewed more as a danger than, than this kind of um, aesthetically pleasing or, or welcoming or clean space. Mm-hmm. Right, so, or sanitized space. But I do think that, like, uh, you know, that our, that notion of, of of the criminalization of immigrants is is plays into that. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to the difference in aesthetics between gourmet versus the lancheras. Um, and so also, um, not only do they look different, but they definitely have different targeted audiences. And how do they find said audiences? And how do they serve uh, the? What do their different audiences look like? Yeah, so it's so with the lancheras in, in New Orleans, and this is you know my area of focus is is they're oftentimes stay in one place for a very long time. They're not mobile, and they'll only, they'll only go to one place and just post up and be there all day. Uh, and that's very different. Uh, and well, I'll, I'll say this as well: a lot of the, the lancheras that I have worked with closely um, over the past like seven years, they usually are posted up really next to day labor corners, so like at a Home Depot or a Lowe's, uh, and they'll, that's where they'll kind of arrange, strategically arrange their cart because they're targeting more of a clientele that, that's, uh, you know, also Latinx um, and mostly uh, day labor that are, are doing construction jobs still working in, in rebuilding or, you know, the, the construction industry in the city. So you definitely have a targeted clientele but it doesn't, a lot of, you know, non-Latinx people also frequent those spaces as well, but they're not 
they're less um, the target versus the, the gourmet trucks are so mobile and they they go all over the city and or, or will be at like a food truck roundup event or or different festivals um, or a wedding. Um, so you, you kind of see that the mobility, I think, is a big difference between the two uh, in, in the case of New Orleans. Um, so clientele, uh, my, my Mateo, he actually, I, he, he painted like the New Orleans mascot on the, uh, the NFL, the New Orleans Saints mascot on the side of his uh, taco truck. And he was trying to get more people from non-Latinx people to come to his truck. And he got like a, a credit card machine because he was trying to cater to uh, the broader um, city. So he was making, but he also had his other truck that was by the day labor corner um, and very much stuck with, with that clientele. Um, so I think those are two two ways that, that they're different. Yeah, and did he find with those those two changes with the painted uh, image and the credit card machine, did the audience actually change? Yeah, he definitely, because, you know, most of the people, he would have to turn so many customers away because they didn't have cash. Hmm. So he finally got it, and, I, yeah, he definitely, and he's in a much more visible spot, too, so he um, was able to, he definitely has more clientele. It worked. And so you said Mateo has four trucks, and so did he gain that visibility, um, word of mouth, but or like I feel like once Eater or Grubhub writes one of these trucks up, it suddenly kind of changes. Yeah, I yeah I completely agree, and you know, and that's um, there was an article that just came out in the ad in the Advocate New Orleans' main daily, uh, and it was Ian McNulty, who's the food writer there, wrote about. Uh, a specific taco truck that that just opened up, and he you know kind of really painted this picture of the city, and and uh, I think that her taco truck is now going to be uh, will have a lot more people uh, visiting it because of this like narrative capital that he you know of him putting legitimizing their the taco truck and putting it in the paper, um, which hadn't been done before because uh, that's part what I'm the my books now I'm like kind of looking at these different how how newspapers are talking about the, the taco trucks and it's really kind of in the smaller newspaper the gambit is really kind of that's where you see a lot of that narrative but but now he he just wrote you know this like article uh in, in the advocate so even you know kind of bigger press there so I think yeah that's an interesting um and I think as it you know word gets out via newspaper like that's how you because they're not marketing they're not maybe they'll have like a Facebook page, but they definitely don't have an Instagram or anything like that. It's just word of mouth that people drive by. Um, but I do think, you know, getting a newspaper article will help business. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not something, oh, we should be clear, that's not uh, limited to Lancheras. Like, I feel like most restaurants are just waiting for their, you know, write-up in the New York Times or whatever. But how does this narrative capital affect the Lancheras in a much different, um, a much different way? Uh, because I, I think I argue that he is legitimizing, you know, the, cause the immigrants were, post Katrina, Katrina were such an important part of that city, uh, coming in when, you know, everyone, no one else could, you know, be in the city and, and rebuilding and cleaning it up. But, you know, there was still like very much anti-immigrant, uh, statewide, uh, legislation that they tried to pass is very anti-immigrant. So I think by giving, legitimizing it through 
you know, this newspaper article, um, it, it carries over to kind of accepting of, of immigrants uh, as well. Like, I think that's such an important part to have uh, that, that goes beyond just like a, a restaurant that's looking for a good review in the paper. But, he, you know, I think it's legitimizing kind of on a more macro level because it's saying, hey, this is a part of the city now. Here's the origins of it, of these individuals that came, the trucks came after Katrina, right? And I think in that way, um, it has, you know, even more reach or, or more impact. Totally. Yes. Yeah, so, Mateo, um, in, in seeing this article, you know, is is he excited? Like, I feel like it's still within the Western narrative that you find success or you're, you know, you're only visible because of other people. Right. And so is that, yeah, I think, you know, I haven't spoken to the people since they published the article. I I sent like a note that was like, that's, you know, like a a message and, you know, told one of the the women that it was, you know, congratulations, it's so cool. Mm -hmm. Um, And she was like, yeah, we'll see like how, you know, business does. But I don't know how, how much, you know, it's what, what, you know, the Western notion of success is having all, you know, lines of people at your truck. Um, Really, if, if, you know, I I do think that's what they are looking for. You know, Um, they do want to have more clientele. Yeah. And Um, so, yeah, with, with Magna, finally being able to purchase the truck now does she feel i feel like there's still must be some bitter men there there is there is she like everything is worth it now and all past sins have been forgotten or is there is it the same struggles yeah i i mean i think that she because she when she had to sell the truck like they she was partner lost fifteen thousand dollars on this investment mm-hmm. and I, she was dead so she had to go you know she was working in construction like cutting tile uh and you know she didn't want to do that she wanted to be her own boss so i do think you know but she was able to accrue more wealth uh and more investors for her sister partnered with her on this truck uh so she, in that way she was able i i, I do think she is still bitter about that process but i do think she's excited to finally be her own boss and be able to like she's is able to realize her own dream in that way Mm -hmm. and so after um kind of going more uh macroscopic um after this article um how do you how do you what do you feel is your responsibility in kind of telling these narratives yeah i think you know trying to I think it's, it's, you know, it elevates, you know, a lot of the voices of these immigrants uh, in a way to kind of show uh, both these broader structural uh, challenges that they face just to, like, you know, live in the city, um, but also the ways in which they push back and really kind of shape the city on their own terms and really kind of highlight uh, the, the community organizing work that's being done in the city. Like, I've... It was with this group called uh, the Congress of Day Laborers. Like, there's nothing like it. It's like a group of, of over a thousand, um, mostly undocumented workers that um, have, you know, are fight for their rights, and they, you know, have met with the mayor to write new, new, like, welcome city, uh, kind of sanctuary city policy, um, and then with the food trucks and the restaurant owners, and even the, the people that cook in, in, in kitchens, um, really how they're, you know, sh- making shaping the city on their own terms um, and able and, and are such like a backbone of the city 
um, but also like within you know cultural production, their work, their their processes go so unnoticed. Um, yet they're so so like important and so um, you know such a vital part of the city. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you write in the article and you put it best that Matteo, um, Magda and Clara were able to kind of um, somewhat access political and cultural legitimacy through owning their own businesses, which I think is like this really small, but awesome silver lining. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's the way that they're, you know, and it's like the entrepreneurship and and kind of the networking that, that does happen. um, is so important to be able to tell and show, uh, people, you know, because they're, you know, often framed as criminals or they're, you know, they're sucking money, a burden to the taxpayers and things like that. But it's actually just like entrepreneurship, like that they're employing and kind of pushing and like creating these new ways of selling food or, or, or building on old traditions of like street vending as like tamale vendors, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and, and being restaurant owners in spite of like all these barriers that they have to go against from language to documentation status and things like that. So I think that's, you know, such an important narrative just to show and to kind of counter these, these dominant narratives of, of, of undocumented immigrants. Mm-hmm. And so, Sarah, what are you working on now? I think I saw that you're writing on tacos and gumbo. Yeah, so I'm, yeah, I'm a tentative title, I will say that. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I'm working on, I did a bunch of field work last year uh, to kind of build up a lot of the research and adding a new field site, uh, which is a, a flea market um, across the river uh, in New, in Algiers, uh, neighborhood of New Orleans, uh, which is a Central American and Mexican flea market. And so kind of writing about the different ways that uh, Central American, these immigrants have accessed the city. Um, and so the tacos and gumbo, I think it's the politics of food, labor, and immigration. Uh, is a book that I'm working on to kind of tell tell the story of, of of these communities. Thank you so much for joining me today, Sarah. You can find uh, her work at sarahfouts.com or at spfouts. Thanks again, Sarah. Thank you so much, Paul. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.